Well, our passage this morning, we are going to continue our study through the book of 2 Timothy, and we're in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, we're really going to spend most of our time on verse 9, but for the sake of the context, we're going to read verses 8 through 12. And if you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's word today. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. Give ear to the word of God. Paul writes, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, a couple of Sundays ago, we we started to look at this passage in the book of 2 Timothy. And uh, I think I mentioned at the time my original intent was to preach through the whole passage, verses 8 through 12. And if you were here, you might recall I preached, ended up just preaching through verse 8. Well, the same thing kind of happened this week as I was preparing. I was preparing to go through the whole passage, and I ended up only going through mostly through verse 9. And we're going to look at that for the most part this morning. Lord willing, but look at verse 8 once again. There Paul exhorts Timothy with these words. He says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Uh, I believe we mentioned that in some ways, that's the theme verse of the whole epistle. That is the main message that Paul is saying to Timothy. It's the, it's the reason he wrote the letter, and it's his main message to Timothy as his young protege pastor, uh, to be willing to suffer for the gospel and to not be ashamed of it. And really those two things are are two sides of a coin. Uh, To to be willing uh, to not be ashamed of the gospel means to be willing to stand up for the truth of the gospel. And if you do that, what is the result in many cases? Suffering for it. You, You could say in some ways that suffering is almost the, in, in, a, in a backhand, uh, in a kind of a backward sense, it's almost the stamp of approval on the message. That the message of the gospel is really being proclaimed if there is a cost in some ways to be uh, paid for it by suffering. To avoid suffering for the gospel would mean to be silent about it. And that is the essence of being ashamed of the gospel. Many of you, I, I'm sure, know uh, of Pastor Vodi uh, Bauckham. We prayed for him about a year ago, I think it was, and it was a while back when he had emergency heart surgery, had to be flown to the States, and uh, there was some thought at the time that he might not make it. Well, he has pulled through, thankfully, and made a full recovery. You might know he has written a terrific book called Fault Lines. Uh, that book, In that book, he exposes the dangers and the errors of the social justice movement and how in a lot of ways that has crept into the evangelical church, even though it is really contrary to the Christian faith. In many ways, it's antagonistic towards a true Christian faith. If you haven't read that, I recommend it to you highly. Well, recently on social media, I saw a quote from Pastor Bauckham about this book, about 2 Timothy, uh, and I think he basically sums up the entire message of the book better than I tried to do a couple weeks ago. And this is what he said. He said, 
the message of Second Timothy is this. Timothy, they are about to kill me for preaching the gospel. When they do, you preach the gospel until they kill you. That is a very good way of, uh, of summarizing Paul's letter, his second epistle to Timothy. That's really what he's telling him to do. Timothy knows exactly what's going to happen to Paul. He, there's no, no uh, misunderstanding about that. There's no vagueness about what Paul is awaiting uh, in his death. He tells him in this letter. He's finished the, the, you know, fought the fight, finished the race, and all these things. So Timothy knows the stakes. He knows what's going to happen. knows why he has to get to Paul soon. And he, is, he knows that if he follows in Paul's footsteps, which is what he's supposed to do, what Paul tells him to do in the letter, that, he, that, same, that same fate may await him as well. He needs to, to devote his life to the truth of the gospel and even lay down his life if need be for the sake of the truth of Christ. Now, throughout the letter, if I can give you kind of a brief sort of an overview of the letter in some ways, in the rest of the epistle, the rest of, of chapters 1 through 4, in some ways you could say that Paul is going to tell Timothy the various ways, what it looks like to not be ashamed of the gospel and to be willing to suffer for it. And so here's just a few examples that Paul gives throughout the rest of the letter. Uh, verse 8, for Timothy to not be ashamed of the gospel, he must mean, it must mean that he must be willing to share in suffering with Paul for it. That's the first thing. Second thing, for Timothy to not be ashamed of the gospel means he must, to quote verses 13 and 14, he must follow the pattern of sound words that he had heard from Paul. And verse 14, guard the good deposit that had been entrusted to him. In other words, part of not being ashamed of the gospel involves holding fast to the truth of the gospel. You know, sometimes being ashamed of the gospel means being silent about it, and other times it means changing the message. So it's not quite as offensive to those who don't want to hear it. And so he tells him uh, to hold fast to the truth. Thirdly, for Timothy to not be ashamed of the gospel means, in, in a practical way, he must not abandon Paul. In his hour of need, the way those in Asia did, the way, verse 15, he mentions Phygelus and Hermogenes, they had abandoned him in his greatest hour of need. But he, Timothy was to not do that. He was to seek him out in Rome and refresh him, like Paul says of the example of Onesiphorus. Onesiphorus, what did he do? He sought Paul out diligently, he says, and refreshed him uh, on many occasions. He was not ashamed of Paul's chains. He didn't say to himself, like we might be tempted to do, you know, Paul's suffering in prison for the gospel. If I associate with him, some of that might rub off on me. I might find myself in trouble. Onesiphorus didn't let that stop him. He went and visited him in prison, and he wanted Timothy to do the same. So to not be ashamed of the gospel or of Paul, his prisoner, he needed to go and see Paul. Fourthly, for Timothy to not be ashamed of the gospel means he must also pass along the doctrine of the gospel that Paul had taught him and, quote, entrusted to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Chapter 2, verse 2. Another thing in addition to this, Timothy, for him to not be ashamed of the gospel meant that he had to do his very best to present himself to God as one approved. Chapter 2, verse 15. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, there's that word again, rightly handling the word of truth. So to not be ashamed of the gospel also means to rightly handle the word of God, 
in his ministry of the gospel. And last but not least, although there, there may be more than this, for Timothy to not be ashamed of the gospel in chapter 4, verse 2, he tells him to preach the word. That's the main thing, to not be ashamed of the gospel. He has to preach it. Preach the whole counsel of God. Preach the word of God. And he says, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. All of those things and maybe other things as well, Paul, I think, gives us in this letter as examples of or aspects of what it means to not be ashamed of the gospel. That's kind of an overview of what is to come, preview of, of the coming attractions. But in a sense, that's all those things. You know, it's easy to say to yourself, well, that's Paul writing to Timothy. Of course, Timothy has to do that. What he's doing in this letter uh, is really giving us a job description of a pastor as regards his preaching ministry. Everything he says to Timothy applies to every pastor today and always will. We aren't in Paul's situation necessarily. We aren't in the same, thankfully, the same circumstance. But these same things still apply. And we also must not be ashamed of the gospel, but must preach it and pass it on and hold to the truth. And so I, I would ask, as always, pray for me. Pray for other pastors you know who are called to these things that we might be faithful. Uh, but in our text this morning, the rest of this passage, Paul doesn't go in so much detail about the what of gospel ministry. What he does is he goes into, I think, the why. Here I think he is going to give Timothy, uh, in, in his exhortation to faithfulness in the ministry of the gospel, I think he's presenting us with some of the biblical motivations and encouragements by which we are to do so. How is it, you know, how is it possible, why are we to be faithful to the gospel and not be ashamed of it? I think that's what we're going to see in our text starting in verse 9. And these same motivations and encouragements, I think, they really aren't just for pastors and elders in the church. Uh, sorry, you're not off the hook. Uh, they are to be understood, I think, as reasons why every one of us who believes in Jesus Christ should be, if need be, willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel and the glory of the name of Christ. So that's what we are all called to. Paul says later in this very letter, he says, everybody who is godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, not just pastors not just elders, everyone who is faithful to Christ's name and his gospel will in some ways suffer persecution. And so this, this message that Paul has in verses 9 through 12 is really for all of us as well. So everything in verses 9 through 11 explains in one way or another the reason why we as believers and pastors as well should be willing to suffer for the name of Christ. And in some way it all kind of circles back around to our salvation that we have in Christ. So our salvation, first and foremost, if you think about it, what is it that could motivate someone to be willing to suffer for the gospel? What would, what would motivate the Apostle Paul to be willing to have his head chopped off in Rome and to not recant? That's, that's what happened. Paul preached the gospel. He was not a rebel. He was not a criminal, but he was charged, much like Jesus was, with, with criminality. For the simple sake of preaching the gospel of Christ and preaching the lordship of Jesus Christ, and it caused a stir wherever he went, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad. There were riots where Paul preached. And so he was executed as a, as a common criminal, as a, as a capital offender, just for preaching the gospel. What would motivate Paul and what should motivate Timothy and us to be willing to endure something like that? 
know, when you think about it, it's easy to read it on the page. When you think about it, you know, I, I've said before, I'm a natural-born coward. Maybe you're natural-born cowards. What would enable you to do something like that? To say, you know, you, you can kill me, but I'm not going to recant of the gospel of Christ. Well, that's what he talks about in this, in this short passage. And our salvation, first and foremost, is the only thing that can give a believer the power to overcome the temptation to fear and being ashamed of the gospel. And so in verses 9 through 11, Paul goes into very brief detail about different aspects of our salvation in Christ. Bible commentator, some of you might know who this is, William Hendrickson, an outstanding Bible commentator, calls this passage Paul's, quote, beautiful digression about the work of salvation. In other words, Paul's talking about suffering for the gospel, and then he kind of, it's not unrelated, but he goes into this, what, what Hendrickson calls a beautiful digression about Christ's work of redemption. Well, look at, look at the first part of this beautiful digression. Look again at verses, uh, the end of verse 8 and verse 9. Paul says, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Not by your own power, right? No one's able to do that. Uh, none of us are able. Paul wasn't able to do that. Share in suffering, he tells Timothy, for the gospel by the power of God. Here it is. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So what is the first thing he reminds Timothy and us of? That God had saved us. Notice he doesn't just say me or you. He says us. He's in the same boat as Timothy in this regard. God had saved us and called us to a holy calling. So the first thing that Paul reminds Timothy of is that for those of us who believe in Christ, as Timothy had done, that God had saved us. So if, if nothing else, if Paul had said nothing else, that alone should be sufficient if rightly understood and fully appreciated the truth of it to motivate Timothy to suffer for the sake of Christ if it be God's will. You know, our salvation from sin that we have only in Christ ought to serve as the motivation for everything we do. That's easy to say and hard to do, right? It's, we don't think about these things 24-7 when you're going through your daily routine. But that's what Paul says in Romans 12:1, right? He says, therefore, in light of the mercies of God, offer your, your bodies up as a living sacrifice. In other words, that's everything. And what's the motive for it? The mercies of God in Christ, which... I won't go into the whole book of Romans necessarily, but when he says the mercies of, of God, he's referring to everything he had said in the first 11 chapters of Romans, which was a big, long, you know, glorious explanation of the truths of the gospel. In other words, Paul's saying, I just spent, he didn't write chapters, but 11 chapters detailing the gospel. Because of all that, offer your bodies up as a living sacrifice. That's the motivation for serving God in whatever we do in our lives and the value and greatness of our salvation that we sometimes take for granted. Maybe, I'm sure I do at times, maybe you do as well. But the greatness of our salvation can't, it really can't be overstated. It really can't be overvalued. It certainly isn't overappreciated by any of us. Um, that's why Jesus says things like this. In Matthew 16:26, I'm sure you've read this a number of times. Matthew 16:26, Jesus says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits or loses his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You know, unpack that for a second. What's he saying? Your eternal soul, your, your salvation, your reconciliation with God, 
is worth more than the entire world. If you could trade your soul, so to speak, for everything in the world, it would be a bad bargain. There are people, many in this world, some professing Christians, who their whole life is wrapped around the things of the world. All they really care about is the passing things of this world that you're going to blink and they're going to be gone. Right? But, what, what, but they should be valuing their souls. Nothing can compare with your salvation in Christ. If you gain the world and yet do not have Christ and lose your soul and are cut off from God and suffering forever his just wrath for your sin, that's not a good bargain. How many go through this life seeking to gain the world, even just a little part of the world, uh, but neglect their eternal souls? Yourself, you might have nothing in this world. You might be like, none of us are, thankfully, but you might be like Job and lose everything. Your health, your family, your possessions, you might be destitute. But if you have salvation, you have more than any of that uh, could give you. Having salvation in Christ is a greater thing than having the whole world. But what is salvation? What does salvation include? I can't answer that question in, in depth this morning, but we'll go through a few things. You know, we don't really have time to go through everything and do justice to the grace of God in salvation. But salvation includes things like, like justification. I know that's a word we don't probably use as much as we should. What is justification? I will, I will point you to Shorter Catechism, question 33, for your homework, as, as, as Rob said. Uh, I won't quote it at length, but I'll give you the, the substance of it. What is justification? It's being freely forgiven of all your sins against God and being accepted by God as righteous in his holy sight, only on account of the righteousness of Christ, imputed to us or accounted to us by faith alone. God is a holy God, and we are far from that. And he sees all of our sins of thought, word, and deed down to their, their smallest little speck, and, and knows the depth of them better than we ever could possibly imagine. And yet he, because of Christ, can forgive and does forgive every believer all of our sins freely. And on top of that, he accepts us as if we had always obeyed his word. Why? Because we have the righteousness of Christ, if we're a believer, accounted to us by faith. And what does Paul say in Romans 5, verses 1 to 2? He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So peace with God, a right standing before God in his grace, the sure hope of glory, uh, having been reconciled, it says in Romans 5.10, reconciled to God, being made right with God by the death of his son, uh, being adopted into God's family. Like that's, that's the crowning grace. Like it's one thing for God to forgive us our sins. And if God would forgive us our sins, and make some other world where he's not going to be, but we'll be okay and put us there forever, that would be more than we deserve. God forgives us. He accepts us as righteous in his sight. He reconciles us to himself, and he even adopts us into his family in Christ. Salvation also includes sanctification. I'll quote Shorter Catechism 35 here. It says, sanctification is, quote, the work of God's free grace. It's still grace. Grace alone, the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. So when you come to Christ for salvation, 
that salvation includes not just uh, escape from and salvation from the penalty of your sins, but also from its enslaving power. And if you understand your sin, if you understand your misery from your sin, and you understand the gospel rightly, you will want not just to be delivered from the penalty of sin, hell, and condemnation. You will also desperately want to be freed from the power, the enslaving power of that sin. Romans 6.14, Paul says, For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. If you're a believer in Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin. You struggle with sin. And I say this often, I think it it bears repeating. Only Christians struggle, actually struggle with sin. But if you're a Christian, you are not a slave to sin. God has broken the power of sin over you. You still sin. First John says if we say we have no sin, we we, we lie and the truth is not in us. Uh, but, But we are no longer enslaved to sin. That is a part of your salvation. Just as the people of Israel were rescued from slavery. Remember that from, from, e, from the house of slavery in Egypt, we are rescued from slavery to sin. Not only that, but one day when the Lord Jesus comes or, or calls us home, you and I will then be free from even the very presence of sin. No more sin, uh, misery, and death. No more at one day will the sins of ourselves or others mar our fellowship with God and with each other. Every bad thing in this world today is in some way the result of sin. And Jesus came to save us from every last part of that. There's much more that could be said, but let that suffice for the moment. God has given, if you're a believer, he has given you all those things and more by his grace alone through faith in Christ alone. That's, that's a thumbnail sketch. Far more should be said probably than that. But that's when he talks about being saved by God's grace. That's what he's telling Timothy and reminding him. About And not only has God saved us in Christ, but he also tells Timothy that we are, quote, verse 9, called us to a holy calling. God has called us to a holy calling in Christ as well. If not for this calling by God, none of us who believe would have ever repented and turned to Christ by faith for salvation. This calling he's talking about here, I don't think it's explicitly only this calling to ministry. I don't think it's just the outward calling of the preaching of the gospel that you're all hearing right at this moment. Um, I think he's talking about what we often call the effectual calling of God, whereby, whereby he draws the sinner to saving faith in Christ. This is Shorter Catechism Day. Shorter Catechism question 31 says, what is effectual calling? What is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's spirit whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. In other words, without the effectual calling, we don't ever come to faith. And it's calls it effectual because it does what God wants it to do. It actually, it's not just the outward call where you hear the gospel, it's the inward work of God's Holy Spirit where he helps us to understand for the first time, convicts us of our sin and our misery, enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ. It, it reveals, he reveals the truth of Christ to us. And then what does it say? He renews our wills. 
I think Martin Luther used to say he makes the unwilling sinner willing. That's what God does through his effectual call. And he does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ as he's offered to us in the gospel. Outside of Christ, we are unwilling and unable to receive Christ as he's offered to us in the gospel. That's what, that's what that is saying. And that's what Paul is reminding Timothy of. Not just the grace of God in salvation, but the grace of God and even calling him to it. And not leaving him outside of Christ. On our own, we are dead, Paul says, in our transgressions and sins. None of us are rightly on our own convicted of our sin and guilt. On our own, none of us really understand the gospel the way that we should. And none of us on our own are willing or able to turn from our sins and to turn to Christ for salvation. That's the, that's the consistent biblical testimony to these things. That is offensive to man's pride, to all of our sinful pride. We like to be the captain of our own ship, but the Bible doesn't uh, teach that and does not uh, coddle our pride. Je Jesus says in John 6:44, No one or no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one. No one can, he says. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. Paul writes, he's quoting the Old Testament here in a number of places in the Psalms and elsewhere. Romans 3, 10 to 12, Paul says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He doesn't leave us any wiggle room, does he? We, we would, and, you know, he adds, the scripture adds, no, not one. I like to think because he knows our pride. We'd say, well, that's an exaggeration for effect. He's, uh, you know, he's exaggerating. None is, none is righteous. No, not one. What, what I, it almost should just say, no, not you. Of course, he doesn't mean me. Yeah, you, you too. Everybody. No, not one. No one understands the way that we should. No one seeks for God. You know, churches have, uh, you remember you've heard the seeker-sensitive movement or the seeker-driven church growth movement. Uh, and, you know, God leads us to seek after him. But on our own, nobody seeks after God. And no amount of changing the message will result in that either. So if you're a believer in Christ this morning and you're saved in Jesus Christ, thank God for it. Thank God for every single bit of it. Don't just thank God for your salvation. Thank God for your faith as well, because that's not uh, the very faith by which you believe was not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. You might be familiar with some of you have probably memorized Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, a very good passage to memorize. I would say memorize through verse 10. Uh, but Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Paul says this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What is he saying that is not your own doing or not of yourselves? What is it that he's talking about when he says, this is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God? Not just your salvation, but even your faith. Your faith in Jesus Christ is not of yourself. Remember years ago, I think it was President Obama, I forget what the context was, but he said, you didn't build that. Well, you didn't build that. 
You didn't come to faith on your own because you're smarter than the person next to you. You came to faith if you're a believer in Christ because God did that in his effectual calling by his, by his grace. He granted you the faith and the repentance and the salvation in Christ that comes along with it. So Paul tells us that this calling that God has called us to or with is also, what does he call it? A holy calling. Now, it's easy for us to think he's talking about ministry, and it probably in Timothy's case includes that, but I don't think that's what he's getting at here uh, primarily. It's holy because it's from God, and it's, God, it's from God alone. It's holy in that we are called to Christ by faith, uh, and when we're called to Christ by faith, we are called also to a life of holiness. We are called to a life of holiness and being, what is holiness or sanctification? We sometimes define it as being set apart unto God. You know, we have uh, in our house, we have a birthday plate. It's a big red plate. It says, you are special. That's the same, you know, that's a lower way of looking at it. But the idea of something being set apart for a special use. We are holy unto God when we are saved uh, by God's grace in Christ. And we are to live a life of holiness being set apart for Christ in all things. Paul says in 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20, that we have been, what, bought with a price, and so we are no longer our own. So we are to glorify God in our bodies, which belong to God. Now, why did, why did God do all that? He saved us. He called us with a holy calling. And why did God do all this uh, for you if you're a believer? Why did God save you and call you, if you're a believer, to salvation in Christ? Do you deserve salvation in any way? In the slightest bit, you know, is, is the difference between the saved and the unsaved to be found in themselves? So that we look at the unsaved and we say, well, you know, well, look at them. He's a, he's a mess. And look at me. Of course, God saved me. I'm me. God got a great deal on me. No, that the difference between the saved and the unsaved is only in one thing. And it's, it's God who shows mercy. He says in Romans in Romans nine. Did you and I deserve to be called by God in the effectual calling of his Holy Spirit unto faith and repentance, faith in Christ, while so many others hear the same gospel message that you hear and yet remain in their unbelief and sin? Are we more deserving? No. Are they less deserving? No. We are the same when it comes to deserving. And so in verse 9, Paul reminds us of the why, not just the what, but the why of our salvation. There he says in verse 9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Here it is. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So our salvation, your salvation in Christ, if you're a believer this morning, is not because of your works. We do not deserve it. We didn't do anything to earn it. Rather, all of it, our salvation from beginning to end, is what? Because of his God's, because of his own purpose and grace. God's grace alone, God's purpose alone, and not ours. That's why Paul says in Romans 9, verses 9 through 16, a little bit of extended quote here. Romans 9, 9 through 16, Paul says, For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, 
though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, no, no, nothing to distinguish babies in the womb from each other, right? Here it is. In order that God's purpose of election might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Same idea. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, quoting Malachi, Jacob I have loved, but Esau, Esau I hated. And then he goes on and says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? That's the accusation then, and it's always been the accusation from those who don't understand the doctrine of grace. Is there injustice on God's part? What does Paul say? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Here it is. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That's salvation. That's the why. If you're a Christian, that's the why of your salvation. Not only God's glory, but it's a matter of God having mercy and compassion on the undeserving. And so it is God's purpose that will stand. It is God's grace and mercy by which we are saved. And that was true of Paul. That was true of Timothy. And if you're a believer, that's true of you and every other person who will ever be saved by faith in Jesus. And so all the praise and glory go to God alone for our salvation. And if that was not quite clear enough, you know, it's a pretty, you know, what does Hendrickson call it? He calls it a, a, a um, oh, I forgot the word for it now, like a little brief excursus uh, on, on what he's talking about. He kind of, oh, a digression, a beautiful digression. Um, he goes into some pretty big things in small in a small amount of, of, of words. In case that wasn't clear enough, what else does Paul say about our salvation in verse 9 and our calling in Christ? He says, those things, quote, which he gave us in Christ Jesus when? Before the ages began. When were you saved? Trick question. You might say, oh, when I was, however old I was, some of you know the day you were saved and came to faith in Christ. In another sense, God gave you that salvation before the ages began. God saved us and called us in Christ unto salvation in him. And these things were given to you before the ages began, or the NASB says, from all eternity. You didn't do anything to deserve that before God created you. It removes any boasting. It removes any source or possibility of pride in our salvation as if we deserved it or had done anything to, to, to deserve it or earn it. God saved and called us in Christ before the ages began. This is what Paul says in the first chapter of his letter to the church at Ephesus. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. I'll emphasize verse 4. Ephesians 1, 3 to 6, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, here it is, verse 4, even as he chose us in him, in Christ, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. 
So if you're a believer in Christ Jesus, whether you be a Calvinist or not, if you're a believer in Christ, why is that? It's because God chose you in Christ. And when did he choose you in Christ for salvation? It was what? Paul says before the foundation of the world, not just before you were born, before he made anything. Not just before he made you, before he made the heavens and the earth, before he even started to make the heavens and the earth on day one. Before there was a before. Time is a created thing. We can't even say things without using time words. Before there was time, God chose you to save you in Christ. And he did not look down through the quarters of time to see who would pick him. Because you were dead in your sins and I was dead in my sins. He chose us, and it was all a matter of God's mercy and grace. That, that is just scratching the surface of what Paul says throughout this passage. Even in verse 9, the greatness of your salvation in Christ, the greatness of God's saving you and calling you by his own grace and purpose, that is meant to serve to strengthen us in all of our duties in serving God for the glory of his name. And so you and I would do well to dwell much on the greatness of the grace of God towards us in our salvation in Christ. That's what he's in brief measure calling Timothy to do. Think about what God has done for you in your salvation in Christ. And in doing that, may the joy of the Lord be our strength, as Nehemiah 8.10 says. And may the joy of our salvation enable us to do all things in our lives unto the glory of God, even if it matters and includes suffering for the sake of Christ and his gospel. Amen.